So we are in Matthew chapter 6. Before we get there, I want you to do a thought exercise with me, and I want you to remember high school. Yeah, I know. We're going to have prayer time later for you, too. <laughs> Some of you guys, that's last week. Others, it's 25 years ago or longer. Maybe it was five years ago. Wherever you're at, just remember. Remember the transition, actually, from middle school to high school. Do you remember that? There is a massive difference from eighth grade to ninth grade. And I remember that. I remember that transition. I remember in eighth grade, I rode my skateboard to school and it was so cool. And then I showed up at high school and there were like these full-grown men with sports cars <laughs> and facial hair, you know? And suddenly the skateboard wasn't that cool. It's like that scene in the you know, second episode of Stranger Things when Billy rolls up with right, to school, you know what I'm talking about? And he's like blaring scorpions and he gets out of his Trans Am and he's got like rock tight Levi's on and all the girls like swoon, remember that? I experienced that. I was one of the kids in the parking lot that was amazed by that guy, you know what I'm talking about? Some of you, you I know, you feel the pain. Well, in that transition for me, I went to school on the first day and I realized that I was in deep trouble because I needed a car. I wanted to have what those guys had and I wanted to be cool and accepted. And when I went home, here was what was in my driveway. We have a photo. <laughs> that was the Griffin family car that when I turned 16, I was gonna drive, complete with like the toilet paper rolls in the back. See that? <laughs> Same color and everything. Take that down. Some of you guys, you're like in your 20s, you're like, oh, that's cool, man, that's classic. That is not cool. There's nothing classic or vintage about a 1980 station wagon. It is just a vehicle of shame, and that's it. And that's what I went home, and I was anticipating driving to school and showing up, and it just wasn't cutting it. So I went to work on my parents, that slow, methodical wearing down of their will by mine. And, you know, I talked them into, you know, I was like, Dad, station wagon's making some sounds. I think we need to replace it, you know? So by the time I was 16, I talked my dad into selling slash donating the station wagon, and we upgraded to a Jeep Cherokee. And for me, that was a big deal, right? In 1989 or 90, whenever it was, I was like, man, I, the Jeep Cherokee was cool. It was four-wheel drive, and it was not the blue station wagon. And I remember, you know, a lot of important things in my life happened in the driveway of my childhood home. And I remember going home, and there was the Jeep Cherokee used, but I was very, very happy. And I was walking around it and just in inspecting it and just admiring it. And uh, I noticed something that wasn't on the vehicle when we had bought it. My sister or my mom, and to this day, I don't know, I don't wanna know, had put the emblem of the Christian fish on the back of the car. And it wasn't like a sticker, it was like a metallic, it was plastic, but metallic looking, raised, and you know what I'm talking about, he's shaking his head. They had put that on the back of the Jeep. And I remember being so furious. And I got down on my knee in the park or the driveway and with my fingernail pulled that thing off. And I remember because it broke in pieces. And I took it off and I threw it in the garbage. And at that moment, it was a snapshot of my heart. I was completely devoted to one, my 16 year old self was completely devoted to one thing. It was to be cool and be esteemed by my peers. And I was committed to that goal above all else. Now, Jesus, in the teachings that we get into tonight, 
is talking about what it's like to his followers to be single-minded, to have one focus for our eyes and our hearts. So would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 6? Last week, if you remember, our good friend Josh Porter was talking about treasures in heaven. In that same flow of thought, we pick up in Matthew 6, verse 22. And Jesus says this, The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Verse 24. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So Jesus um, is picking up, there's this theme happening here. He's talking about treasure, your eyes, your hearts, and money. And what Jesus is saying is that whatever we set our eyes on affects our heart, and whatever we give our heart to begins to have influence in our lives and can even become our master. But in Jesus' like fatherly wisdom, and remember again, Jesus, King of kings above the universe, looking down, he invites us into this teaching tonight with warnings and then invitation. God invites us to set our hearts rightly so we'll truly be satisfied. So two warnings and an invitation. First, the warnings. The eye and light, God and money. Let's look at each. Verse 22 said, the eye is the lamp of the body. So picture like a, a lamp in the ancient Near East, like Aladdin's lamp, a vessel that has oil in, that wasn't supposed to be funny. <laughs> Aladdin's lamp, I was thinking, how do, what's a reference point for a lamp from the ancient Near East? Aladdin. <laughs> now it feels kind of funny. So picture Aladdin's lamp, but not in a cartoon, like in real, right? It just got dug up, archaeology. And it's, it's filled with oil, and there's a wick coming out of it. And the purpose of the lamp when you light the wick is what? To give light, to generate light. And in the nature of it, a small wick, like with a candle, will give small light. A bigger wick filled with oil will create brighter light. And there's even the reality that you could have a lamp that's snuffed out or out of oil and gives no light, right? But its purpose is to radiate light. We'll chat more about that in a minute, just keep that in your mind. Well, what's interesting as I dug into this and was reading the commentary, super fascinating. It's always dangerous when you're reading commentaries by really, really smart men and women and they say things like, well, we don't exactly know and the evidence is inconclusive. You're like, oh, great. But one thing that was super interesting about what is Jesus getting at with the lamp and the body and the light and the soul, what, how does this connect? What was super interesting is the description words of I, healthy or unhealthy, or some versions may have said sound I, but that descriptive work, word in the original language is used elsewhere to connote generosity or stinginess. So in the ancient world, having a healthy eye meant you had a generous heart. An unhealthy eye meant you were overly concerned with hoarding your resources. You were stingy. So in context, thinking about the treasure and thinking about your heart and money, I think the primary meaning what Jesus is getting at here is that your eye being healthy 
means you have a heart that's generous. You recognize all that you have has come from God and you freely give it. And I think this lines up with other things we see in scripture on the screen, Proverbs 28, uh, 22, and it says this, a man with an evil eye or woman is eager for wealth and does not know that poverty will come upon him. So there's this idea, evil eye is connected with stinginess. Now, with that metaphor in mind, then there are two ways of seeing the world. You can look out at the life that each one of us, as residents of this great city, look at all that you have that's spread in front of you, and you can look at that and see the lack you can see what you don't have. And that can lead you to crave more and more. More money, more things, more experiences, more lust, etc. But the other way to see is to see all that you do have. And even beyond that, to see those that don't have much in this city and around the world. And then from that site, to then move into a place of celebration and gratitude for all the good things in your life, and then even share with generosity out of the same. And what's true about life that I've experienced, and this is true in relationships, and this is true about how we see material wealth or the possessions that we have, what you look for, you often find. In other words, think of a friendship, or if you're married, roommates, whatever the case, think of a person, and if you analyze that person looking for the good in them, and throughout the day, throughout the week, recalling this last week, you will find good. But on the other hand, if you're looking for fault, and you look for weakness, and you're looking for how they let you down, and you're looking for all that's wrong with them, you'll find that too, won't you? In the same way, Jesus is saying, your eye being healthy in regards to all that you have, is a decision to see the good, to receive everything you have with gratitude, and then beyond that, to see others that lack and to see how you can supply their need. And this is the way of Jesus. It's a way of joyful, grateful enjoyment without guilt, but then also a generosity without limit. So then we have to ask ourselves, in regards to finance, wealth, possessions, what kind of eye do you have? Now, what's interesting beyond this is that there was a raging debate even in the time of Jesus, all the way through the Greek thinkers, Plato, Aristotle, up into the church fathers, Augustine, that was not even settled until the Middle Ages about the nature of how the human eye sees. And if any of you know more biology, than I do, or you're a doctor or nurse, you know what I'm talking about here. But there was two views. They were called intromission and extramission. So intromission was this idea that the way that eyesight works for the human is there's light outside of the body that comes into the human eye and then is registered by the brain, creating sight. Extramission was this idea that no, actually the eye sees by the light exiting from the body. Now we know biologically now that it is intromission, light coming in, right? But notice in the ancient world all the way to the Middle Ages, there were both these views. 
And not only in the medical community, but then even in philosophy, and a sage teacher like Jesus would speak to these things. And what's super fascinating is that if we look at this passage through both of those views, they both, I think, add meaning into what's being said here. So first, intermission. Think of it this way. If your eyes are healthy according to Jesus, then he says your whole body will be filled with light. So with this view, what we look at, what we take in with our eyes, makes us either full of light or full of darkness. And we know in Jesus' teachings and throughout scripture, this is talking about moral good or evil. And so the emphasis here is that whatever you look at actually transmits into your heart and your inner being. And Jesus' teaching, when it comes to our eyes and what we look at, is serious. He says regarding lust, if your eye causes you to stumble, to pluck it out. And so we know as an important part of living in God's kingdom now is that what we choose to look at, specifically denying any kind of sexual lust with our eyes, is of utmost importance to our rabbi and teacher Jesus. And I just want to say that as leaders here at Bridgetown Church, we're committed with you to seeing equality and honor for girls and women in this city, in this church, and around the world. And we know we don't have all the answers about what that looks like in the workplace and in all different levels, but we know that this is a super, super important conversation, and we're engaged in this. And of course, we follow Jesus, who set for us this incredible example of being radical in his day and age and how he elevated and valued women, how he honored them and welcomed them in as co-leaders in the kingdom of God. So with that in mind, I have to say specifically to the guys, we can't be working together for the safe and fair treatment of women and at the same time lust after them. If we objectify one woman, even if she's anonymous on a screen, we objectify all women. So if you are here and you're not winning that fight with your eyes against lust and pornography, we wanna help. We have a culture here that I'm so proud of with our 423 groups for men and for women where we're seeing the most humble and courageous people I know enter these groups and find new success in winning this battle against lust and pornography. If that's you, we would love to help you get connected with one of those groups. But maybe the struggle of what you intake in your eyes is different than that. It's different for everyone, but maybe for you, it's as you scroll through your social media feed full of what current culture says is beautiful or not, which we know are highly curated and edited photos, but maybe you look at that feed and you're constantly fighting this disease, this cancer of comparison. Maybe you see media regularly and you leave, you shut your phone off feeling insecurity about your body and your beauty. And we just want to pause and just say, your father looks at you and he delights in you. He created you in your unique beauty, whatever your body type and your looks are. He created you that way. And he doesn't care what current culture says is hot or not. So we need to ask ourselves, in these, with these ideas fresh in our mind, 
Where is darkness coming in regularly in your eyes and in your heart? What darkness do you need to protect your eyes from? And maybe even in this Advent week as we anticipate the days leading up to Christmas, maybe this is a great week to abstain from something that God's bringing up even in your mind right now. A source of darkness, a source that doesn't help you to be more like Jesus. Maybe this is a great week to abstain from that. Maybe it's social media, whatever the case, and replace it instead with worship and scripture and meditating on Jesus and filling your eyes with pure light. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light, Jesus says. Now, the other way to look at the metaphor is extra mission, this idea that what's inside your heart radiates out. And Jesus, of course, teaches on this elsewhere too. He says, the mouth speaks an overflow of the heart, right? Whatever's in your heart will come out. And I remember um, youth ministry days and even with my kids when they were little, taking the sponge. Did you ever do this? You were a youth pastor if you did this. You took a sponge and filled it with water and you're like, now what happens if your heart is full of something pure? You squeeze it and out comes water. And then you take something dark like grape juice and you fill the sponge, you know what I'm talking about? Go home, try it, it works. (laughs) Point being, there's a simple reality that what you take in and what is in your heart will come out like a sponge squeeze so we ask ourselves what are our hearts full of does light and love ooze out of your heart and mouth and life and this is why um, as i was reflecting on this this is why the practices of jesus and what we're learning as a community are so important these are about intentionally training ourselves to become the kinds of people who live like Jesus without even thinking about it. Like, think about it. The practices that we're learning and the things we're doing together as a community, they're not about the practices. They're about training your heart to be like Jesus so that at some point, you don't have to practice it in that sense. It comes out naturally. It's transformed you, matured you to be like Christ. So, Jesus uses this example to probe the condition of the heart. Light or darkness, good or evil. And in the next teaching, he takes it a step further. If that wasn't enough, Jesus turns up the heat. But remember, the perspective again that I think is really helpful for me is think about sitting down with somebody that's wise, that's been around longer than you, maybe in your career track, a mentor or a parent, that you love and respect, and they sit you down and they're helping explain how life works well. That's what Jesus is doing. He's brought in, ushered in the kingdom reality, his kingdom here on earth that we're now part of, and he's like, please listen to me. I wanna help you. This is how life in the kingdom of God works well. So this next teaching fits so well with that idea of wisdom. He says, no one can serve two masters. And Jesus actually warns his disciples in this teaching two times. He says, it's not even possible. You can't do it. Jesus is trying to save his people from this spiritual schizophrenia. And notice that he's not saying that it's unspiritual. He says it's impossible. Your good father loves you. He does not want you to waste your life doing something that will never work out. It's impossible to have two masters over your heart. 
Now, in the older translations, I mean, maybe you've heard this, it said it's impossible to serve God and mammon. Does that, anybody remember that? That's old school, right? And in the old translations, the reason they did that was this word mammon was a pagan name for a deity of wealth. So remember, we know from the scriptures that there is the God and there are little g gods, right? That's why God says in the Ten Commandments, you have no other gods before me. There are little g gods. There are powerful spiritual enemies of us and of Jesus Christ, these demonic little g gods. And so in those older translations, they're acknowledging that. They're saying there is a master out there of money, the love of money, and it's called mammon. So mammon reminds us that wealth is a spiritual force with tremendous attracting power to draw us into its orbit. There's an enslaving power to the love of money. And once it hooks you in, it drags you where it wills. And Jesus is simply saying, you cannot make me your master and have this love of money. The marching orders of mammon and the marching orders of God are entirely in different directions. So just think about that practically. If you were to get in a car and get on I-5, you cannot head north towards Vancouver, BC, and head south towards San Diego on I-5 at the same time. It's impossible. And Jesus is just highlighting that. He's saying you cannot at the same time go one direction towards God and his kingdom and at the same direction go towards the love of money. He says it's impossible. Jesus is calling us, his followers, to a single-hearted devotion to him. And you know, the metaphor that came to me that really is a scriptural metaphor, especially in the Hebrew scriptures, is that our relationship to God is framed as a marriage. Did you know that? That's one of the most controlling metaphors for what it means to be in a relationship with God, to be married. And marriage, in essence, means faithfulness and covenant commitment to one. And that's exactly what God is calling us to. And for you, maybe it's not the lure of money. Maybe it's like me when I was 16, the approval of man. Or maybe it's the next experience and the hedonism of the city and just wanting more fun and more and more and more. And God is saying, your single-hearted devotion in this covenant is to me. And the reason why is because that's what your soul is made for. That's how life works. But we do have to ask a question. Is it possible to be set on God and still accumulate wealth? I mean, what about all of us in this room right here who have a heated home or apartment to go back to. Most of you guys came here in a car. In the world standards, we are wealthy. And then there's even some I know and you know too, who whatever they've done, even their desire to do business and help human flourishing, they've accumulated wealth. So what do we do with that? Well, thankfully, um, it's a great passage in 1 Timothy. Let's read this real quick. Let me read this to you. Here's a great answer to that. Paul says to Timothy, Timothy's in Ephesus, a city that had great wealth. There was women that he talks about that had great wealth and were adorned in gold, and there were men in that city that were making a lot of money. And here's what Paul says to Timothy about that. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, 
but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this same way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. So I think this applies to all of us in this room. Number one, don't put your hope in money, Paul says to Timothy. Number two, be be, um, committed to doing good and being generous. So it's really interesting because not only, and this is, think about the automization of so much that we do, we we are having more and more unprecedented amounts of free time and entertainment. And I think this is a call for us in our culture, obviously, to be generous with the money that we have, but also to be generous with our time. He encourages those that are rich in Ephesus to, with their free time, to do good, to serve. I like, I'm so proud of my parents who, in their retirement, are constantly, and sometimes I'm like concerned, they're serving. They serve constantly at their church with the three-year-old class. They're going to like midweek Bible study and watching the three-year-old so, you know, moms can have Bible study. They're connected in and helping refugees in their city. And I look at what they're doing in their retirement and it's admirable. And I just think here we are in a city where young people come to retire and maybe there could be more of this kingdom-minded attitude with our time. And then three, Paul says, store up treasure for the age to come. Isn't that interesting? There's this argument, and this is Jesus with um, where your treasure is, there's your heart, don't store it up on earth where it will be eaten and destroyed, store it up in heaven. There's an argument all throughout the New Testament, the teachings of Jesus and now Paul, and that argument is leverage everything that you have now for the age to come. Now, also, there's a piece in there about enjoying it. So and there is, God is actually wants us to enjoy life, but also to be wise and leveraging it for the age to come. So the question for me, and I think even prophetically for us, Bridgetown Church, December 2017, the question is, how do we do this? How do we keep our eyes focused and filled with the light? How do we keep free from the power of these lesser gods that want to master us? How do we keep our eyes and hearts set right? And I think the key is first realizing whose eyes are set on you. There's a story by Father Gregory Boyle of his friend Bill, a middle-aged man whose dad was dying of cancer. And Bill stepped out of his regular duties in his career to go be with his dad and take care of him in his last days. And the story goes like this. Bill's father had become a a frail man dependent on his son to do everything for him. Though he was physically wasting away from the disease, his mind remained alert and lively. And in the role reversal that's common when adult children take care of a dying parent, Bill would put his dad to bed and then read him to sleep exactly as his father had once done for him in childhood. And Bill would read from some novel, and his dad would lie there, staring at his son, smiling. And Bill, exhausted from caring for his dad and work, would plead with his dad and say, look, here's the idea. I read to you, you fall asleep. 
His father would impishly apologize and dutifully close his eyes, but this wouldn't last long. Soon enough, his dad would pop open one eye and smile at his son. His son would catch him and whine, come on. His dad would dutifully oblige until he couldn't any longer. And I would open just to catch a glimpse of his son. And this went on and on, night after night. And after his father had passed, Bill knew that this evening ritual was a case of a father who just couldn't take his eyes off his kid. And how much more God. You have a heavenly father, friends, who can't take his eyes off of you. As Anthony DeMello writes, behold the one who's beholding you and smiling. What if the key to keeping our eyes and our hearts set right is simply receiving the gaze of our Heavenly Father and then casting our eyes back on Him, beholding Him? You know, one of the best things um, in my life and my spiritual journey um, has been the encounter and the just growing relationship with the Holy Spirit. And, you know, as an Alpha team, we did an Alpha retreat um, a month ago. It was amazing. And during that time, we had everybody map their spiritual journey. I don't know if you've ever done this. It's a great exercise. Um, But just kind of thinking through your life over the years and decades, if you have decades, uh, some of you have two decades, but looking at your life and kind of mapping out highs and lows of your spiritual journey, right? And as I was doing that and then sharing it with the group, I just was kind of shocked at one of the high points of my life and my spiritual journey has been the intimacy with the Holy Spirit that I've experienced with you guys and that's growing here at Bridgetown Church. And something happens when you're focused in in the presence of the Holy Spirit that Paul describes in Romans chapter five, this idea that God pours out his love in us, into our hearts, it says, by the Holy Spirit. Connecting and being close and intimate with the Holy Spirit is always defined as knowing God's love and experiencing God's love. And so I was in one of those moments recently. Um, it was at the five o'clock gathering here with you guys, and I was you know, there worshiping, and in this moment of just feeling God's presence and closeness, I asked this thing that maybe you won't dare to ask, but I said, God, what do you think of me? Scary, but good, right? So I'm like, okay, God, what do you think of me? And I immediately had this image pop in my mind of a father holding a baby. And I resonated with the father. I was like, I get that. I'm a father of three. A big part of my heart and my life is thinking about my kids. And then I also was like, yeah, and I'm a leader in the church, kind of like a father in the church. And I'm like, I get it. Thank you. And he says, no, you're the child. The baby. And then all of a sudden, everything flipped. And I don't, I'm a 43-year-old man. I don't picture myself regularly as an infant, right? But in this image, I'm like, okay, that's, that's what I'm doing. And I imagine myself as the baby now, looking up into my father's eyes and his pleasure looking down at me. And like a baby that needed to be held, I needed to see and I need to see my father's gaze of delight, his desire just to hold me his smile over me as a helpless child. And remember what 
the Father said over Jesus is also true over you, that the heavens parted and God spoke down over his son and said, this is my son or daughter whom I love and am well pleased. And that same reality is true for you. I wonder if you can receive that tonight. Your father actually delights over you. He doesn't just like you, he doesn't just love you, he's giddy with excitement over you. So how do we keep our eyes set right and our heart full of light? How do we keep serving God and not only that, but say no to the siren call of hedonism, power, money, and fame? I think first it has to do with realizing God's deep love and then secondly out of that like the New Testament says to fix our eyes back on Jesus to behold him and you know the best way I can speak this out of my own life is the time that I have in the morning in the scriptures it's become even in this past year it's become such just like something I look forward to making coffee especially this time of year plugging in the Christmas tree lights It's the best to be the first one to turn on the Christmas tree lights. Sitting in my lounge chair, it's cold, coffee, Bible, and to meet with Jesus in that space. And I was thinking, what is that? What's a great metaphor for that? And here's what came to mind. You know when you go to an art museum? You guys go to art museums, right? The Louvre, you guys were just the Louvre, weren't you? Yeah, you were. Uh, But you know, you go to an art museum, and one of the most shocking things for me when I go back to Portland Art Museum or wherever I am and I go to an art museum is how big the pieces are. You forget you see an image on your phone or on your computer or even, you you go stand in front of an original painting that's bigger than you. It's actually a little bit, that's why people stand in front of these things, you know, they stand in the art museum and they just like stare at it. I might be getting old, but I can do that now. I can stand there and just like look at it. It's amazing, right? Uh, Jenny and I were in Arizona spring break and went to this um, friend of ours invited us. We went with her to this uh, art installation in downtown Phoenix. It was awesome. And there was paintings there that were so big that like the stage, several people were standing in front of the same singular painting looking at different aspects. It was that big. And to see the whole thing, you had to back way up and look at it. And what you do in a setting like that is you just behold it. You look at the little details, and then you back up and you look at the whole thing in one glance. And that exactly is what it's like to open the scriptures, to meditate on Jesus in the scriptures and behold him, to take him in, to just allow his majesty, his greatness, his kindness, his compassion to overwhelm you. You read it several times through. I close my eyes or I stare out the window and I just imagine what it is. And not every time, but sometimes there's just this, something comes over me and it's like that image of the heaven opening up and you're there with the greatness of Jesus. So here's the invitation. This week, as we look forward to Christmas, I wanna invite you to cut out anything that's seeping darkness into your eyes and heart. And instead, replace that with time with Jesus. Whatever that looks like for you, I would encourage you to incorporate the scriptures for sure. Let him fill your eyes with light to fullness and overflowing. Let's pray.